Hello, welcome to Hangover Lounge, your destination for podcasts and storytelling from the entertainment industry. Thanks for joining us. Hey, welcome back to part two of our blogcast, XCU The Viewfinder, where we post interviews with screenwriters and directors and talk about the business of getting movies made and other things. We left off at the end of part one of our interview with Robert and Scott, discussing their screenplay about the life of renowned mobster Skinny D'Amato and working with people who knew him and Skinny's surviving daughter, Paula Jean, to get the story. Paula Jane, that was her father, and she probably saw a lot of her father through rose-colored glasses. Scott and I talked a lot about delving into this dark side of Skinny, mm. the, the man. And, you know, how much of it did we want to bring out and how much did we also want to embellish if we needed to, just to make the movie that much more compelling and engaging. So, so that was the eggshells we were walking on a little bit. And thankfully, when she read the screenplay, her reaction first was, I think, kind of okay. Then she thought about it. And then she was like, oh, wait a minute, this is a little too, <laughs> too dark. And then she, then she came and Scott talking to her. And, you know, it turns out that she, she's, I think, happy with the screenplay. Yeah. If I'm correct. I mean, you know, the funny parts were like Skinny had this amazing relationship with her mother, with his wife, Betty Jane, who died tragically of a brain tumor, which is in the movie. At the same time, he, you know, had <laughs> dalliances, as they say. And it was all sort of part of their life. And the, and the weird thing is, that's all been documented. So, you know, Paula Jane didn't really mind about any of that. But when, when we had Skinny swearing, she'd say to me, oh, my dad never swore. I said, Paula Jane, you know, your dad, he, he hung out with, these guys drank till five o'clock in the morning and Frank and these guys and then people like Sam Giancana and others. I mean, you're going to tell me that none of these guys ever swore? Yeah. And she told me this one thing he used to say, which we put in the script, which is kind of funny, the way he used a word instead of a swear word. You have to explain her, look, by the time we get a movie going and we cast who's playing skinny, every third word's going to be like, what the fuck is this? And what the fuck? Is Actors love those words, especially if they're playing Skinny D'Amato or someone like that. I know. That. My experience with, with that sort of thing has sort of been like, step at a time, just say, yeah, I get it. We'll do our best. And, yeah. you know, people get yeah. used. It all sounds like exciting. Hey, we're going to make a movie and I'm part of it. I'm going to be in it, you know, as a character. And then they suddenly realize, or someone who I know and love is, and then they realize, yeah. wow, you can kind of just... It's a little like we're talking about remix. You can kind of erase my life or my relative's life and recreate me, and I'm terrified that I'll look like something that I may not think <laughs> I look like. But in fact, you might really be quite close to that. How do you guys feel about the revisions that are happening amongst each of your various departments? Robert, how do you feel when you're on set and you see somebody that's doing something to your words that are written on the page? And I'm also as of the same mindset as, as Scott had said, and that's why I was very appreciative and, and, and so you know, thrilled to work with Raymond, who is a writer, where I'm of the collaborative mindset. If the intention is the same, but maybe said, sounding a little bit more organically to what we're doing and, and how it's developing, mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. If it starts changing the story around completely, then it starts to like nudge, like, you know, in, in the rib cage a little bit, like, wait a minute, we're changing the story around. To me, it's all about just trying to get the best way to, to get that intention out, to elicit that emotion and, and to tell, you know, the story you intended to tell. Yeah, I think that's well said. You're in a bind if you don't let actors feel that they have the freedom to, you know, to conform things to what how they're going to say it. You're also in a bind if they become sort of so used to that they're, they're not thinking anymore about am I changing the intention or not. This is, as a director, the, the kind of the line to walk that, that can be very tricky. I, I, I always feel like 
say it so it feels like you really are saying it. You shouldn't be bound to exactly the words. A good performance is people feel like it's really coming out of you. And then that can also go awry and you have to have kind of the early warning signs of how much yeah. you, you know, let someone so-called get away with, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody, how about your, your feelings on that stuff? You know, I think you have to let them have the freedom to move and move, like physically move. And, and that might mean saying something slightly differently, which shouldn't matter at all. I'm also a fan of Aaron Sorkin. And I know people always, some people complain like, oh, there's so many words, so many... You know, I could listen to his stuff all day long. Just that's me. So, I mean, there's something also about the cadence of great writing. And I think Sorkin is extraordinary that way. I don't know that he's, you know, the most extraordinary director, but I still love listening to his words. We all have to figure out how do the words serve the visuals? Do the visuals serve the words? You know, the funny thing is we always talk as filmmakers about the visuals, right? But but what do people always do? What do people out there, they quote lines from movies. They, you know, I mean, yeah. we may talk about great scenes that we remember, visuals, but most people quote <laughs> lines of dialogue. So there must be a reason for that. I heard somebody say this, but I think they're so correct. They said, you know, TV is really much less a visual than an audio medium because people walk in and out of the room while it's on. Yeah, And I started to notice that the, the limited series has become sort of so central to the way everyone's perceiving modern storytelling mm -hmm. that really they do seem to work best when they're not reliant on visuals. Whatever you think of this one way or another, we're not in the theater kind of trapped, happily so sometimes, you know, and, and at the kind of the mercy of what the filmmaker's delivering. You're, you're wandering around and you're online and you're doing stuff while the thing is on. I'm so interested in the Skinny D'Amato movie. Do you feel like it's shaping up to be more of that, more Mammoth-esque, if you will, of a dialogue-heavy actor piece? No, I think what we achieve is pretty organic dialogue. The story's meant to be, without being too self-congratulatory yet, because <laughs> we haven't made it and nobody's decided to finance it yet, but I think it, it captures a place, a time, and it tells the story of America in a pretty big way because it starts in 1923 and goes to 1984. There aren't any grandiose speeches or anything like that. There were so many interesting things that he did. We wanted to make sure that those were in the movie and making sure it was still a story that had conflict and drama about his family and you know, his, the decisions he had to make. Yeah, I mean, in terms of dialogue, I think we tried to remain as truthful to the scene and, and to who these people are and how they sound. And I guess the rhythm of it and, and, and to make sure that, you know, it, it's also engaging and, and obviously not, yeah. you know, giving a speech just to give a speech. Are you guys thinking as the as this, like I said, this progresses, you know, how we're watching things of expanding it and, and perhaps thinking of it as a, longer limited series idea? Well, I mean, I think the gods may tell us that if that's possible, but I would absolutely, without any question, be open to it if that's what it turned out to be instead of a, a movie, you know, or just one movie. Absolutely. This is clearly a two hour and 20 minute or two hour and 30 minute movie. There's no question if you make a movie. So the script's long, but, but it could even be longer. There was the West Virginia primary, which turned out to be integral to Kennedy getting the Democratic nomination. And in order to win in West Virginia, there were a series of things that had to happen <laughs> that involved members of the mafia, 
suitcases of cash, all have been multiply you know, documented. And in the screenplay, that particular event is very short, but it could be it could be an hour. Some people think that you're you know you you must only stick with what is provable, and you can't deviate from that in a, in a fictionalized films. I, I I think there's a way to do it personally where you don't have to be necessarily tethered to reality all the time. But of course, it gets tricky in well, terms of things like that. How, how do you feel both as a producer and also Robert or you as a writer? We're not making documentaries. If we're making documentaries, it's different. So if you have a point of view of a, as a filmmaker, whether everybody loves it or not, why not do it? The artistic statement is what you're going after. You know, look, if you take a real incident and completely put it in outer space, Maybe that's not so cool. But I, I do think, you know, filmmakers, that's why we make movies and that's why we're all not making documentaries. Storytelling is, is um, I feel like it needs to have a long leash. The audience makes their choice to like it or not like it, you know, and that's, that's showbiz, really. I mean, why not try it? So, you know, why not try something different? It's the way, it's the way great filmmaking develops and it's the way great directors and writers and even producers develop as brave filmmakers, ultimately. Do you want to direct more, Scott? I had a period of time where I thought that's really what I wanted to do, of course, like everybody. And when I came out of film school years ago, it's what we were all geared toward back then. And film school in the late 70s was... You know, you had to direct everything up. Producing was meaningless. Writing was good, but it was a means to an end. And we all had to direct. Right after Home Alone, I directed one movie called Family Prayers with Joe Mantegna and Ann Archer, Paul Reiser. And it was the culmination of all that time wanting to direct. And I had a great time. The movie didn't get a big theatrical release. Uh, I sort of, you know, went back to producing quietly. <laughs> and I had a great experience worked with fantastic actors. Joe Mantegna was extraordinary. I'd always thought about it, about doing it again, but when I, I realized that my own personal passion, even though I thought coming out of NYU that I had to direct, my real passion was writing. And even producing was, you know, I fell into it in a good way, but I really fell into it. I became good at it, organizing. Nobody else wanted to do it. You know, I ended up doing it. I ended up, you know, turning it into a pretty decent career. But my personal passion from really early on in life was writing, whether it was journalism or short stories and then ultimately screenplays. So I, I think what I've discovered about myself, I'm more interested in writing. I feel right now that I'm more interested in directing a couple things that I didn't write rather than things I wrote. I know how hard it is to direct. And I know most directors are just okay. That's just the way it is. And if I think of myself as only being maybe okay, I'd rather find somebody who's much better than that or find, you know, I like developing talent. So I'm working with a lot of talent coming out of the Philippines. I'm working with a director here where I am now on a movie because I think he's gonna be somebody and I find a lot of satisfaction as a filmmaker in having those people develop their talent. You know, the guy who directed Smoke Signals was a young Native American guy. I could have even thrown my hat in the ring because it was the perfect movie, but I didn't. If somebody would allow me to direct a $35 million movie, I, I know I could do it, but I'm also like, no, I want to have somebody who, who has a track record, who's smart, and who understands the material. So... I don't know. I vacillate about it. I, I always thought that was all I wanted to do. But then I really realized the truth is I really wanted to write. I always wanted to write. I wanted to be a writer 
since fifth grade. And that's what I really, I really love. And I, I still prefer that to, to even producing, you know, even though I'm now, <laughs> you know, technically that's my career. I, I prefer writing. I just enjoy it the most. I enjoy the solitude. And then I enjoy seeing the magic of having stared at a blank page of paper. And then a year later, or sometimes, you know, 14 years later, people are making this movie with all these people and actors. And it's, it's like, I don't even know if you can explain how that really feels. I don't even know if you can capture emotionally what it feels like to see all of that from nothing from your imagination come to life. So, you know, under the right circumstances, there'd probably be something I'd feel good about directing, but I don't have to direct anymore. I don't, it's not a burning desire anymore. I like to see directors do great work. I love to see them interpret it and come up with great things. And for me to go, you know, rather than me go, I could have done that. You know, I don't want to have the, I could have done that feeling. It's like, oh my God, he or she came up with something spectacular. I would have never thought of it that way. That's great. I love that. Just one quick note. I started out as an actor and then as an actor right. delved into writing and I've directed, I directed short films. I've directed some theater stuff. I think a good director is a writer, has at some level studied acting, knows about producing. I think a good producer knows about acting, knows about writing, or has experienced each one of those, has touched upon each one of those. The best things happen when there's a great collaboration. Guys, thank you for taking the time with us today. This has been great. You know, Scott, we hope you'll join us again. And thank you for listening to our blogcast interview featuring Robert Bruzio and Scott Rosenfeld. Lorelai, take us out of here, please. Thank you for joining us for the Hangover Lounge blogcast, XCU, The Viewfinder, where we discuss screenwriting, filmmaking, audio storytelling, and offer different perspectives on entertainment and all things showbiz related. If you'd like to join our mailing list or be a guest or contributor on our blogcast and share your point of view with our community, please reach out to us through our website at hangoverloungepodcast.com and send us a message. And please check us out regularly for upcoming interviews with screenwriters, filmmakers, and industry insiders on our blogcast right here. We hope you've enjoyed your time here and will join us for more podcasts and storytelling. Until then, thank you for listening.